Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Tuesday, February 6th, 2024. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. And you can go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness, And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It also contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. And it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581. Call that number and press 1. It'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. 
I'll see it. I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code, and we can have a conversation. And alternatively, you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org, or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at whyagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n dot o-r-g. And if we get a comment or a question from you, we'll address it on the Internet show, and then as time allows, send you a notification about what day or time that occurred so that you can listen to the archives for the feedback or input. And we greatly appreciate whenever anybody does that because it just makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be of service, and that's just a whole heck of a lot easier to do when we know how things are landing for you. So give us a call and let us know. 563-999-3581. Call that number and press 1 on your phone, and we can have a conversation. How can we be of service to you today? Related to this work, related to these powerful tools, related to anything we've been reading or discussing, such as the way of mastery or A Walk in the Physical by Christian Sundberg, or the list goes on and on and on. I was having a conversation with someone earlier today about what people believe, and he was having a a deeper level realization than most people do about how Everything anybody believes was taught to them by somebody else, for the most part. I mean, I was quick to point out to him that there are people who have deep insights, intuitions, inspirations, creativity that isn't taught to them by another human in a body. And the example that came to mind was Eben Alexander who was a neurosurgeon who absolutely believed what science had taught him, which is that human consciousness is absolutely nothing more than the byproduct of random neural firings. Nerves firing in the brain, producing what we call consciousness. And he believed that with every fiber of his being until he had a brain infection that essentially made him brain dead by every standard that medical science has. There was no way that he could survive and they had him on life support, and they were having all of the discussions about taking him off life support because even if his body did survive, he'd be a vegetable because he'd had so much brain damage from the infection, which had basically filled his skull with infection, and and that had gone all the way down through his spinal cord so that when they did a spinal tap to try and figure out what was going on, the pus, the infected material, shot out like it was a pressurized cannon. 
And from that, and from all of the technical readings they could get from every device they have, there was no way he could have any consciousness, there was no way he could survive, etc. And so everyone was shocked when days after this this whole ordeal began, he awoke and came back to full health with a story of where he'd been and what he'd done during that period of time. And the story included awareness of things that had gone on in the intensive care unit and in the hospital and people that came to visit and what doctors had said, that if you believe that we are just a physical body and if you believe that consciousness is nothing more than random neural firings or the byproduct of random neural firings, there's no way any of that could happen. And so he wrote a book about his story, Eben Alexander, and you can look for it. The title will come to me. And so here's a person who was saying, well, everything anybody believes is taught to them by another person. And I said, well, for the most part, that's probably true through the use of language, etc. But there are also experiences like this that great minds, spiritual teachers, great creative souls have had for thousands of years that goes outside the experience of language, it goes outside what somebody in a so some person in physical form told them through the use of language. And that's why a work like this, the way of mastery that we've been reading, to, to my eye and ear, is so valuable because it calls us to tune into that inner voice, that inner activity, and honor it, appreciate it, value it at different levels so that we can open ourselves to something beyond what the way of mastery would call the trivialities that have been shoved into the intellect like garbage into a garbage can. And the essence of Mind Shifters Radio and the Mind Shifters support groups that will happen tonight, most Tuesdays and Thursdays from 6.30 p.m. till 9 p.m. The essence of that work is to help each of us have access to tools that can allow us to have a deeper experience of something other than just what the intellect will serve up. And so it's my hope that if you're listening to this, if you're listening to the reading of the Way of Mastery, if you're using the worksheet process or the EFT tapping to dismantle energies that are less than loving, if you're using the Mind Shifter tool, which I call targeted journaling and Michael calls the Mind Shifter tool, to stir up what is in your consciousness but is actively being hidden from you by some part of your mind that believes it's being 
protective in some ways, that if you're using these tools and you're having an experience that is fundamentally different and better, hopefully, than what you've had prior to the use of these tools, we encourage you to let us know. Give us a call. Share your struggles and your successes and your questions. If you're available to do that live, it's 563-999-3581 and press 1 on your phone, or you can send us an email. And it is greatly appreciated whenever anybody chooses to do that. I was thinking about whether or not to go back and read a a previous chapter in The Way of Mastery or to move ahead. And if I move ahead, do I skip over the meditation into the mind of Christ, which is Lesson 11, which I believe is best experienced as a meditation without commentary and without the kind of interruption that I've been doing as I read through these lessons with commentary. And that is available as an audio file that you can listen to on the MindShiftersAcademy.org website. There's a specific page that lists the Way of Mastery audio files without commentary. It's just me reading them. You can also get access to it by going to ChristMind.info.info. And on that page, you can read that Lesson 11 and or you can hear the audio of that Lesson 11. And my recommendation to people who are engaged in this work is to listen to that in the privacy of your own home quietly as a meditation. And it talks about visualizing it's it's basically just a guided meditation and the last line is if you ever need to know where you should be descend to the depth that you reached in this meditation and then when you ascend back to full conscious awareness open your eyes and bless the place wherever it is that you are extend the energy of gratitude and blessing to whatever's going on in your life, wherever you are. And in that, you will be fulfilling your purpose. So that's my recommendation, unless somebody you know, calls and, and emails and says, please read it with commentary, I'm going to leave Lesson 11 to be accessed by individuals as they want to and used as a meditation. As the title of it says, A Meditation into the Heart of Christ. And I'm going to pick up reading Lesson 12. Lesson 12 is titled, Receive the Pearls of Grace. And the text reads, Once again, we come forth to abide with you 
and to celebrate with you. Once again, we, not I, not a single entity, but we as collective consciousness, we come to abide with the holy capital M mind that is the offspring of the creator. Here they use the word sonship, but in the ancient language, the word son meant offspring. It wasn't gendered male or female. It had nothing to do with feminine versus masculine, male versus female, genitals of a certain variety. It's every entity, every consciousness that is the offspring of creation itself. And the text goes on and says, we come to abide with our brothers and sisters, and we come as brothers and sisters. Indeed, we come forth to abide in that process whereby the offspring of creation is remembering itself as the offspring of creation. Indeed, beloved friends, I slash we come forth to share with you that whatever already resides within you, I come forth, we come forth to join with you who have chosen to answer a certain call, you who have chosen to bring forth a creative expression that can signify to the world the capital T truth that alone can set this world free. And I don't know what there is about this, but that very statement makes me want to go back to lesson one or two where it says give up every urge to be seen as special give up every idea that what you are doing will be seen by anybody outside of you as important Give up every idea of being so special that God, or light, love, will say, oh, you're finally worthy, I'll let you into heaven. And it's right there in lesson one at the bottom of page five. It says, if you engage the way of the heart, it's not the way of the intellect, if you engage the way of the heart, you will discover a pathway of awakening that is not a pathway of avoidance. It's a pathway of full truthfulness. It is not a pathway of accomplishment and pride. It is a pathway of releasing from the consciousness, your consciousness, every hope and every wish to be special, to see yourself as having made progress, to see yourself as being proud so you can pound the fist upon your chest and spread your tail feathers. It is a transcendence of the hope of somehow getting God's attention so that God or the Creator will look upon you and say, 
oh, okay, well, you've been such a good person. Yes, we'll allow you into the kingdom of heaven now. So this is a pathway of absolute, ordinary allowance. And when it says that we come to join with you, you who have chosen to answer a certain call so that you bring forth a creative expression that can signify to the world the capital T truth that alone can set this world free, my mind says, oh boy, there are going to be people out there that think, yes, we're light workers. We're going to bring light to the world. We're going to show this world. And that's just nothing to do with this pathway. This is about being a little candle in Carlsbad Caverns or Mammoth Cave, a tiny little flame in the darkness, and refusing to go out. But understanding that you're not going to change the nature of the cavern. Susan, 610? Hi. Hi, Dr. Tim. Hard to interrupt this because it's so good, but there's some there's something that's happening in our refugee center which makes me think that I've stumbled upon a whole other way of getting healed and watching other people be well. Maybe they don't continue that way, but when people get together in this refu- refugee center, usually they speak very little English. So they're like little kids. And the things that happen between us, we are, we are all really well during that time. We get a big charge out of someone saying something either correctly or saying something that isn't quite right that's very funny. There's a lot of affirming. There's a lot of playfulness, a lot of affection and appreciation. You know, I, I put food out at one point. It's one of my little jobs is just bring food in there and set it out for people. And we have about 60 to 70 people there and a bunch of children and Everybody, one woman from Eritrea came in and said, Susan, appreciate it. And that was a new word for her. And we had such a laugh because she got this big word and used it. So we're like a bunch of kids. But something else is happening at the same time. It's like we're in the kingdom of God or something. We're we're all well right then, even though for these people, what they've been through, we've been told not to ask them about what has happened to them because it usually is hard for them to go into that and they have no words to describe it. So we stay right in the present. And I'm thinking this is sort of like using tools. Now, I don't know whether this you know, is sustainable when people get more and more language and they go out into the world, they're probably just going to come into their messes again. But somehow when you're reading these things, I think I've just been in a big cauldron of, I've been in a heavenly place or something for a while. Exactly. It's exactly right. 
and and if you listen, if you're listening with ears wide open, you hear the way of mastery already in the first lesson. Several times it said, the creator thinks with great playfulness, mm, great it. joy, great abundance. Let not seriousness enter the mind. Mm-hmm. Right there's another line where it mm. talks about it is essential to think with the mind of the creator. And how does the creator think? With exuberance, with joy, with great playfulness. And mm. that is a healing process. It is yeah. the energy of life and love getting expressed, and healing happens when that happens. It does. And I'm trusting that it will affect them in their when they go back home and they speak their native language to their family members or there are these little enclaves of people from Afghanistan, people from Eritrea, people from Sudan, they or Ukraine, we have a bunch of Ukrainians now and they're getting jobs and they're getting their papers so they can become citizens and it's a, it's a lot of work. But while they're there all of that, I don't think they're really thinking about it. So it's, I, I think it's a kind of alchemy. I'm hoping that it seeps backwards into their lives and they feel reassured. Today, one of the people who was leading one of the classes said, I'm going to put on some music and we're going to line up by height. And of course, that had to be explained and then people are saying, well, I'm six feet tall, and you're very short. I mean, you can make a lesson, an English lesson, out of anything. But the amount of laugh, laughter and friendly shoving, it was, it, was, it was. I come home, and I'm flying high. And all I do is wash dishes and put out food, you know, but they come in there, and they, well, I get ambushed but here, in the here, kitchen. L- listen, listen to what you just said. There, there is. <laughs> reminds me of a time once in the past where you said, "And all I can do is just send them blessings." Like poor me, like I can't help. And as though sending blessings yeah. to someone isn't a big deal. And you said, <laughs> "All I do is wash dishes." No, that is not all you're doing. Mm. You're being loving. You're extending compassion and care and joy to other beings of brilliance and light, who are in desperate need of the reminder of their true nature. Mm. That is so true. Because because they've been surrounded by people who've absolutely forgotten or yet to discover their brilliance and light. And Mm. they're living in the consequences of being surrounded by fear. Yeah, that's so true. So when you say, all I'm doing is you're completely missing the the full impact of what you're doing, which is extending your true nature, being loving, allowing, breathing, softening, being a, another, as Michael Rice would say, a real, true human life in the presence of these other people. Well, and it's not hard going there, and it's just not hard to do that. Well, the essence of 
of what I would say to this is that doing that, being there with those people, is every bit as much, if not more, advantageous to your personal spiritual growth than reading a thousand times the way of mastery. <laughs> Maybe so. Because mm. it's just doing it. It's living it. Mm. It's living the truth that's hidden behind these words. Yeah. Right? These words don't speak the truth. You can't write the truth. You can't speak the truth because the truth is life expressing. Mm. And there you are with those people expressing life, expressing what Michael would say, true human life, this loving energy. You know, if you want to ask what's important, that's what's important. Becoming aware of and living from the source of your true your true nature. And it comes via being invited to become a child again. That's that playfulness you were talking about. The lack exactly. of language is such a fun thing because we use body language and joke and and make these incredible cultural gaffes which bring on a lot of laughter because we know we don't know each other's rules. It's just great. Anyway, carry on. But I just couldn't help but bring that in right now. I appreciate it. I think it's, you know, I one of the tremendous values that's hidden in what you're saying is the... Michael talks about, you know, the power of life and death is in your words. He likes to quote Yeshua saying that. And Mm -hmm. the distortions of language and thought and how we are trained and conditioned to believe that language is the key and language has the truth, etc. But it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, in some of his older talks, uh, I don't know about older, but in some of the talks Michael used to do years ago, he would talk about how it, it has to do with language. And, and the thought, the, 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 the formulation just flew out of my mind, so give me a moment here. He would talk That's about okay. how... how um, Well, I'm, I'm flooding in, and my mind is flooding in with other things he's talked about, how if you want to change, you want to destroy a culture, change the meaning of their language, etc. But the, the, oh, yeah. the fact of the matter is the word is not the thing. He would talk about how a word is a symbol of a symbol. Mm. So when I say the word lamp, mm. it's, it's, you know, four letters, L-A-M-P, but it's a symbol that I'm using to stand for the picture that my mind shows me of this hunk of energy sitting on my desk. So 
there is a hunk of energy sitting on my desk, right? Yeah. It's got a black lampshade. It's got a certain configuration to the body. It sits on the desk. And it's it's an energy that can throw off illumination if it's plugged in and turned on, but it's just a hunk of energy. Now, my mind receives light bouncing off of that hunk of energy hitting my eyes, which are just antennas, and my mind gives me a picture of that lamp. Now, this particular lamp, I guarantee you, shows up in my mind differently than it does for anybody else who comes into this room. And here's what I mean by that. This lamp was purchased by a dear friend of mine that I was in graduate school with, and we did an internship together, and then we started a business after our internship together. And I only have this in my possession because she was my friend and she purchased it and she got cancer and died. And that's the only reason wow. this is in my possession. It was, it was, you know, willed to me as mm. part of my inheritance from her and that friendship. So when I look at this lamp, I'm flooded with all kinds of memories and emotions and thoughts. And, and they, they definitely affect how attractive I experience this lamp as being. Mm. And other people might look at this lamp in this office and say, you know, it doesn't really match the decor. Right. Not really my taste, etc. Mm. So, so when I say the word lamp, it's not just a symbol. It's a symbol of the symbol, the pictures in my mind, so it's two or three times removed from the actuality of this hunk of energy on my desk. Mm. So when you're talking to these people and you're saying, oh, we don't even speak the same language, it's, that's a gift that you are then being motivated to or given the opportunity to connect directly with the other human beings, the other energy systems, the other consciousness that's mm -hmm. in the room with you, rather than you see somebody and they've got a certain dress or a certain they're you know they're just fresh from the shower or they haven't showered for days or you know they their hair isn't done the way you think it should be or or they've got this label they are from this country or that country or and that loads up in your mind and as mm. the way of mastery is trying to tell us. In, in previous lessons where it's talking about judgment and perception and veils, it says as soon as you look at a hunk of object, a hunk of energy like you know any hunk of energy in life, and you label it as a tree, instantly mm -hmm. every association and memory you've ever had about that object called a tree floods into your mind. And now from now on, you're not seeing... A direct, you're not having a direct experience of that energy field and your interaction with it. You're having an experience with your associations to it, your judgment, mm -hmm. the, the veils of perception that mm -hmm. you've created. When you're working with these people 
and you don't share a common language, if you're going to connect with them at all, you have to do it at a much more real, fundamental, actual level of connection. Mm -hmm. That's what you're experiencing. The thing thing that blows my mind, though, is the sense of fun and delight and affection that can flow when those other things are taken away and you're left with this. Exactly. 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 When you're not bringing all of your hidden past and traumas into this interaction because that's what our language is. Our language is stuff from the past. Mm. And so when you stay in the present, you get the gift of this vibrant, actual energy fields interacting with energy fields, and it's delightful. Uh. It's blissful. Oh, yeah. And it goes beyond words, each new heartbeat. Just like if two people are deeply connected and they're together in an intimate moment, there aren't any words for that. We throw words on it, but the words aren't the thing. You know, the great teachers of many, many uh, hundreds and thousands of years tell us the word is not the thing. Krishnamurti is not the first person to say it. He used that phrase over and over again, but the word is not the thing. Yeah. Your thoughts about the thing are not the thing. And when you're in a situation where you're you're there to be loving, to try and help, and you don't share language, the true reason you're there, your true motivations and intentions get to come through and they resonate with the people around you and there's the joy, there's the fun, there's the frivolity and the, the bliss state you're talking about. It just it just arises. Well, it does. My intention was to do my part and to help out. But that just floated off somewhere when I got in there. There was this kind of connecting that began happening, which had nothing to do with me helping them or or anything. It was just, uh, it became, oh, we were all in nursery school together or something. <clears throat> Well, it's exactly what the way of mastery is calling us to, to understand that every thought we have about something, every judgment, every perception we create is a distortion. And that's lesson three, where it talks about the process of forgiveness is is the actual process of dismantling those judgments, those perceptions and distortions. Mm. And that's what's happening when you're connecting Mm. with those people 
without language. Exactly. It's and almost like being like, given, like being just being like being given permission to be who I am and show affection the way I would like to without any it's just totally different. It's like being set free in a way. Here we are so hampered by the lack of words and we're so freed up in another department. Exactly. You're not being hampered at all. You're freed up. Mm. Exactly. It brings you out of the past into the present moment when you don't have language. Right, it does. I have a friend who we get together and we can speak only French together. This doesn't happen all the time. She's from New Haven, but when she visits, we go for a walk and we only talk French. Well, I'm not fluent in French, and she is, but I'm stumbling along, and she usually just ends up doubling over laughing, but it's a similar kind of thing. It's just very a friendly way to connect. Anyway, thanks for the invitation to tell all that and to see how it fits. Well, and thank thank you for presenting it. I think it fits exactly with what Way of Mastery is calling us to. Everything from living in the moment, dismantling the judgments, being playful, all of it. Understanding how little we actually know and being open to being shown or taught, all of it is just exactly what we're being called to in this work. So, anything else, or you want me to come back to picking Not up? Not really. Lessons? I mean, well, I'm, I just started listening to your newest. You, you just put it up this morning, I guess, the Bill, second part of Bill Sterling's book. I'm only partway in because I got home from the refugee center and saw that it was there because I'm on the subscribe, so I get a notification. It pops right up, which is great. I recommend people do that subscribe and do that little bell and then when you come up with something new there it is I wouldn't think to look for it so it's good but it, it went well I guess you only I'm only half through but it's very well this is the uh, this is the uh, on your mind podcast hosted by journey's dream that you're referring to and it's my right. second interview with Bill Sterley who wrote the book the emotional sobriety solution so thank you for that little notification I hope people find it valuable it was his book is spot on and I talked about it as you know um, something that I use I see other people using when I teach them about the IFS work the formula for thinking about a negative emotional state when it arises in me and tying it to a perceived need that I have and being clear about that and being clear about a request from either from myself or the other person to help me meet the need that I'm 
you know, in, in the belief that it isn't getting met. It's just a wonderful way to diffuse negativity and negative energy in conversation. Mm. And I can do that with my own parts in an IFS kind of a therapy What's model. IFS? Internal Family Systems. Oh, okay. Richard, Richard C. Schwartz and his, his way of talking about how we all have parts within us or you all have these different positions within us, different motivations in oh, yeah. any given moment. Mm-hmm. And, and they are all parts of the same mind, the same personality that developed at different stages of our childhood and you know, young adulthood as a response to a problem. And so they can oh. create very conflicting motivations in any given mm-hmm. moment. And if we have ourselves, if we're stuck in procrastination or we're stuck in an unproductive communication pattern in a relationship, one way to look about it, at it is that part of me is digging in its heels saying, I'm not going to listen to this other person, I'm not going to give in, I'm not going to be right, I'm not going to let them be right, etc., because I desperately need this X, Y, and Z. And it may be something that comes from decades ago in my life. And that's the IFS work. So when mm, I'm talking to other parts, when I'm talking to other parts of myself, I can use this model of, you know, the emotional sobriety solution presented by Bill Sturley to formulate how I'm thinking and speaking to the parts of me that are upset. Mm. And I can get more clear about what would be useful to me as a core personality and to the part that I'm trying to deal with. Mm. So I can use it in my conversations with other people and I can use it in the conversations in my own head. For compassion and clarity. So anyway, thank you for mentioning that uh, interview. I hope it's useful. And um, yeah, I'm eager to listen to the re- the rest. All right, I will I will mute you so you can listen to the rest of the show. Okay. And thank you again for the comments and questions. So we have some time. I can continue reading in Lesson 12, or somebody else can raise a hand, 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1, we can have a conversation. What I was reading in Lesson 12, I'll remind us that the title of this lesson is Receive the Pearls of Grace. And that last paragraph that I read sparked me to jump back to the first lesson and talk about how everything about the way of the heart, from the very first lesson, it asks me to drop any sense of being special. I am just like every other spark of consciousness. And in in the way we talk about it in our language, it would seem a paradox to say I'm not doing anything and in the next breath say 
you can become a savior of the world. I can become a savior of the world. Well, the only way that happens is when we understand that it's not me, Tim Hayes, a certain age, a certain height and weight, a certain profession, a certain history of life experience doing any of this. There's an energy of consciousness. There's the energy of creation. There's the energy of the one mind that gave rise to me, that keeps my heart pumping and my breath moving and my food digesting. It's not me doing anything. And yet the source of all life can do practically anything through me if I can become that clear, wide-open conduit for that loving, creative energy. So when it says that I come forth, we come forth, to join with you, anybody who's listening to this work, you who have chosen to answer a certain call, you who've chosen to bring forth a creative expression that can signify to the world the capital truth, capital T, truth, that alone can set this world free. Please don't let seriousness enter the mind. Don't, don't think of yourself as a light worker and special above anybody else. It's just that when the truth as the light shines, the darkness disappears. And then the text goes on and says, set the world free of what? Free of fear and free of all the children that fear begets. What are the children that fear begets? Guilt, dishonesty, unworthiness, limitation, need for suffering, judgment, and the list goes on and on. So the children that fear begets includes every negative emotional state you've ever had or can think of. And then the text goes on and says, ultimately, when a gardener seeks to improve the quality of the soil from which he would want his flowers to bloom forth, the gardener seeks not to look upon the effects of a weed or that which is above the surface, but rather he makes haste and goes for the root. When the root has been pulled up, the effects of that weed can no more be seen. Therefore, in truth, we come not to improve what you would be thinking of as the surface of the garden, the surface of the soil, but we come to strike at the root that resides deep within the mind in the depth of what I have called the heart or the soul. All that we endeavor to do then is designed to uproot the weed of fear that has made a home in the depth of your being. Now, the next sentence is highlighted by me a couple different ways. The sentence reads, The way of the heart has been designed to bypass the cognitive mind, the thinking mind, and to strike at the roots of fear that abide in the depths of the mind in a place that is by and large unconscious. All that we do with this work 
seeks to dissolve that root of fear from the depth of your being. The first 12 lessons have required you to truly participate with the devotion necessary to extract the wisdom that has been offered to you. We cannot do this to you. We can only do this with you. For never can anything be forced upon the mind of the offspring of creation. The Holy Spirit makes no effort to usurp or take from you your freedom. For the very reason that in your freedom all power under heaven and earth resides. I'm going to leave the reading there for today. The next heading is titled Discover the Obstacles to Love and yet the first four or five paragraphs on this page talk about what's necessary to receive the pearls of grace. And there is the truth of it right there at the end. You must choose. You must be willing to do the exercises offered, to usher yourself into an experience that you can't have by just thinking about the the words on this, these pages that you, or the words you're hearing or your life or your emotions. You've got to step into a practice that will help you have an experience outside of the conscious logical mind. And in this work, what they're calling as being outside the conscious logical mind is the way of the heart, is your invitation to the creative source, source of all wisdom and light, to enlighten you, to help you be consciously, actively aware in each moment about the impact of the choices you're making about what to value. Your choice to value one set of thoughts over another. Your choice about how you spend your time in the day. Because what you choose to spend your time on in the day is what you are communicating to the world that you value. So what do you value? What are you spending your time doing? To begin with, I just want to express gratitude to everybody who's listening to this right now because what you're spending your time doing, what you're choosing to demonstrate to yourself and the world around you that you value is choosing for love over fear, choosing to entertain a different way to think about yourself, to have the audacity to think that it might be possible for you to be something other than just a physical body. And that, I would wish for you the same level of positive benefit that I have received over the past 20-some years of doing work like this. Actually, it goes back quite a bit longer, but specifically with the tools that Dr. Michael Rice offers and 
the way of mastery, which wasn't quite 20 years ago, but in one of my first one of my first um, ventures down into Heartland, which is the intensive center, intensive learning center that Michael and Jeannie run, I met a woman. Her name was Jane, Jane Evenstar, and they kind of tongue-in-cheek called her Saint Jane because she was a mature woman who was also a unity minister. And we had a connection during that first nine-day intensive that I was there. And she chose to stay in connection with me afterwards through emails. And I shared with her the blog post that I was writing every week based on the Tuesday support group, the MindShifter support group. And when she read a couple of those blogs, she wrote me, I think she called me, on the phone and said, oh my gosh, this is the way of mastery. And I had no idea what the way of mastery was. But because Jane Evenstar said, you're going to love this, this is just like what you're writing about, I got the book right away. And as I've been telling people ever since, it's been singing to my soul and The interesting thing to me about it is that what I was writing about in those blog posts each week was just what we had watched on Dr. Rice's videos that week in the support group because at that stage of the game in the Mind Shifter support group, the entire group was spent on watching one of Dr. Michael Rice's videos and then discussing it, and then doing worksheets. And each week, as I would show a different video of Michael Rice's work, then I would write a blog post about the content of the video, the first hour of the video, or the second hour, as case would be, and then the discussion that evolved from that, and that that's what those blog posts were. And it was from that that Jane said, oh, you have got to read The Way of Mastery because this is the same work. So that's why we're here doing what we're doing. I thank you all who are choosing to stick around for this and communicate to the world that you value this level of growth and this level of focusing on loving energies choosing for love instead of fear. I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. Welcome, Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Tim. I appreciate it. Yeah, Jane Evanstar was definitely a a character. Bless her on her journey. Yep. All right. Well, you're welcome and deserving. Have a wonderful show. Thank you. So welcome, everybody, to the second hour of MindShifters Radio, and today is Tuesday, February the 6th, 2024, and our call-in number is 563-999-3581, and press 1, and that puts you into queue to talk to us, and we would love to hear your comments and questions, because that makes this your show. 
And we are on day 17 of looking at the Enlightenment, which is what's been printed so far out of the Kaboris manuscript, the translation of the Aramaic into English. And uh, so we're glad that you've joined us, and we hope that you following along in your, um, if you've got a copy of the Enlightenment that you're following along, Michael tells you what page that he is on and where he's reading, and and then he's giving commentary and discussing it. And so we hope that you're following along with that. And I am turning on the uh, Podbeam. We're doing a simultaneous recording of Blog Talk and Podbean until we can figure out how to connect them electronically. And so we're glad that you've joined us. There's several people that are connecting with us on Podbean. Um, and so we're glad that you're out there. So we'll give Michael just a moment to get dialed in. And uh, I'm turning on the chat room as well. Multitasking here. Have Blog Talk switchboard, Blog Talk chat room, Podbean chat room. So got a lot of things going here. So Michael will dial in and I'll turn it over to him. And if you have uh, questions or comments, please press 1 and that puts you your little hand up and we know you want to talk instead of that you're just listening. And if you've missed the past um, shows, they're in an archive. If you go to whyagain.org, and click on over on the right-hand side, there's the Kaboris, and underneath it, you'll see it says Enlightenment Study. And if you click there, I've been putting all of the links. We're uploading the um, audios. I have to put a picture with it to upload it to YouTube, so it's got a picture of the Enlightenment book. And so we've been uploading that to YouTube, so you can pick up the archives either from YouTube or from Podbean. They are both there. And if you're having any issues with any of it, please drop me a line at Jeannie, J-E-A-N-I-E, at whyagain.org, and let me know, and I'll see if I can get it cleared up. And we're glad that you're with us. So Michael should be dialing in just any minute. And those on Podbean, uh, you can also ask questions there in the chat room, or you can click that you want to call in, and I'll be able to turn your mic on. I'm not sure. I may have to um, do some kind of translation uh, since we're not connected by, except by an external microphone there. But we'll see what we can do to get your questions answered. And... Uh, Let's see if Michael's with us yet. And welcome Nightfall in the chat room and all of you who are on the switchboard. We've had several new people pop in on the switchboard. If you have a question, you know, press one sooner than later. A couple of days we got down to just the last four or five minutes and Michael was on a roll and so you didn't get your questions in. So if you have a question, press one earlier in the show so we can get to you. And I'm going to walk in and see if Michael's having technical challenges. It's not showing that he's on yet. 
I will give him just a minute. Welcome, Michael. Well, thank you, dear heart, and welcome, everybody. Honored and delighted that you're here and that we get to move forward in this conversation. Did you have a caller there, sweetie? No, I was just telling them that, you know, a couple of days we had someone press one at like the last five minutes and you were on a roll and we didn't get to their questions. So I was just saying press one earlier than later so that we could get their questions. But no, nobody has a hand. Okay, great. Well, then we're on page 22 of the manuscript and coming into, I think, some pretty important material. And yesterday I talked a little bit about this idea, and uh, I've gotten some pushback from from folks who who are kind of like, well, you know, what difference does it make if love is something we're going to do? I love you. You love me. Of course, that's what we all do. Or, Or is love a noun? Does it describe a state of being? Or why couldn't we just make it both? Well, uh, Vladimir Lenin, you know, probably responsible for more deaths in all of history. Literally, just the murder rate is just unbelievable. It said that the way you destroy a culture is change the meaning of its words. And so, it's, and in this section coming up, it's such an important key. So we're going to drop the mistaken meaning of the word love and you know this is a clarification this just come uh, let's see we i think the last edit on this text was done about six years ago and this is something that's just gotten really clear clearer and clearer over the last four or five years you've been part of the radio show listening to it becoming clearer that love does not represent something we can do to another get from another give to another it's a space that we can be with and for each other, but what we generally call love will actually more accurately in our language to fit with the Aramaic would be honor, to honor each other. And so where the text mistakenly utilizes the word love, we're going to shift that into honoring instead of loving. So it'll be another uh, another level of clarity. So yesterday we've complete with the idea that in the Aramaic, the word neighbor is a mental word, not a physical word, word, and it represents anyone that you are thinking about or have ever thought about, including yourself. They are your neighbors. And when we move into this realm of the higher law that we're looking to build brain cells for to comprehend, i.e. understanding from an energetic perspective how things work, then we get to find, we get to uh, to move into that space where we can honor, truly honor, which is an expression of our being, is an expression of love, but it's not the thing itself. And so this word rachma, when we hear Yeshua talking about in the Aramaic or the Greek, the way the Greeks translated, they said what's most important in the law, i.e. Aramaic, what's most important in the way things work as a human being, and he says first order business, got to have rachma. Rachma 
is a filter in the frontal lobes of the brain that does two things. One, it keeps the mind on track with intentions that are keyed to love. There are basically three filters, and maybe, Jeannie, you could put a link into the notes for the, the filters on the mind. In the, in the frontal lobes of the brain where intentions are stored, there are three filters. There's hostility, there's fear, and there's rachma. Hostility and fear mean that intentions keyed to negativity and destruction are going to be available through that mind if they're the active filters. And only one filter can be active at a time. Rachma is the third filter. If Rachma is active, then the only quality of intention that can pass from the frontal lobes into awareness are those that are keyed to love. If it's hostility, then the only quality of intention will be those that are destructive. And so if there's fear active in the mind, then the quality of intentions are going to be uh, the, the, the love and the destructive are going to be excluded and the intentions will be negative. You know, when they said to Yeshua, how do you tell where somebody's at? My, my take would be that they were saying, how does this mind work? How do we tell where a mind's really at? And he says, you look at its fruit. You look at the result. If your intentions are negative, if your intentions are destructive, then you know that either fear or hostility are active in the mind. If your intentions are key to love, then you know that love is active in the mind. And then... In the back of the brain where perception is formed, again, there are three filters. There's fear, there's hostility, and there's love. And each filter is interdependent, each filter being active. Once you activate Rachma, then the corresponding filter Kuba will be activated. And it's kind of that old story of you can't have one without the other. If one is knocked out, then the other one's going to go very quickly. So when Kuba, the filter over the back of the brain where perception is formed, is active, Rachma is active, intentions are loving, and intentions are the raw material of goals. When your goals are loving, then you know you're on track with Rachma. And that's automatically going to bring Kuba into activity. When they asked Yeshua, what's most important? The word was Rachma. So Kuba, this second filter, and the two filters together in the ancient Aramaic would be, would be what be, would be referred to when they said perfect love casts out fear. Fear-based perception, fear-based intentions can't be active if love is present in the mind. This is like simple, basic mind management that the world knows nothing about. There will be people who say, well, you know, I'm not supposed to judge my neighbor, and I'm not really judging them, but boy, they're really, you know, evil sinners, and they're going to go to hell. Excuse me? Does that sound like it's keyed to love? doesn't sound like it. And so when those two filters are active, then intentions are key to love, perceptions are key to love. And that's what we're looking to, to do. So this first paragraph on page 22 must have Rachma as a permanent condition of mind. So the next edition of the book will do some, some editing on that and uh, 
just making a note here. Make sure we make that clear. That makes sense for everybody. There's a whole section on the website about that if you want to have a look. And if anybody has a question, now or at any point in what we're doing, please push one. Let's have a conversation about it. You know, your, your questions may help us to clarify this in a whole other way on a whole other level. One of the things that motivated Dan McDougall that we've spoken of to initiate this work was that he was involved in a lawsuit. As a lawyer, he was involved with a, in a lawsuit that had to do with a uh, an agency that were trying to... Let's see, how can I best say it? Control people's private land in a way that the law did not provide for them to control. That was kind of his starting point as he shared it with me. Actually, as he started to understand, as he started to work with the first century Aramaic, he had communication, he had contacts with uh, some of the uh, higher-ups in British intelligence. These were from his, his uh, years in the Navy. And he processed with them. He discussed with them. He's like, you know, these are intelligence agents. It's like, what's going on here? What's, what's the deal? And at that point, what he came to was that the problem was that people were in blockage of personal errors that they couldn't see when they were mistaken. And as he discussed this with his friends in British intelligence, and he's like, you know, we need to rectify this. We need to figure out a way to make this work. And what they said to him is, well, if you want to really get this correct, if you want to really get this down pat, then the place you've got to take this is into the prisons because that's where you'll find the minds that are in the, the greatest state of blockage of error. Now, it was a further advancement. That, that was kind of the in, initial uh, work that Dan was doing, and that's what got him into the, working in the prison in the first place. It was several years later than when the realization came that actually the, the problem was not blockage of personal error. The problem was that people saw their errors very clearly, you know, the person who thinks you're the problem in their life sees their error, the error that you're the problem in their life. They see that very clearly. The problem is that they call their error truth. And by so doing, you, when you remember the, uh, the Harvard research, it says that in a time frame where 10,000 brain cells are firing, the max amount of data that goes into conscious awareness is nine bits of data. That's it. And if I fill that nine-bit space called perception with errant information and I call that information truth, then I have no room in my mind for truth to show up. This opens the space for understanding why perception needs to be collapsed in the genius of Yeshua knowing exactly how and teaching people how to collapse perception, how to, to collapse that space, 
that nine-bit space of conscious awareness with its errors to knock that out so that there was room for truth to come forward. So the problem wasn't really blockage of error. People saw their errors. The problem was they called it truth. And now with calling an error truth, there is no room for truth to show up in a mind. So the, the real problem becomes blockage of truth. So this became you know, the focal point of the teaching in, in understanding what Yeshua was talking about, how to manage the mind. The unwillingness of many intellectuals and experts to allow the use of the amazingly effective words of Yeshua for healing the ailing minds of criminals, delinquents, squabbling spouses was a problem and a puzzle. Then the necessity for honoring God, and, and again, this is a, a change that's going to be made in the next edition. It isn't love of God. We were mistaken in understanding that word. But honoring the creator, law, truth, and love. So when we have honor for law, when we have honor for the way things work, when we have honor for truth, when we have honor for love, then, and when that comes first above all other objects of attention, and this goes hand in hand with that, the Greek mistranslation, when we see the, the correction of it, and then the second, so the second part of the law is the honor for neighbor and self in order to have a sound mind and sound judgment. This is what was finally recognized, and that's where the key lie. The unwillingness of intellectuals and experts results from a very human weakness, blockage of truth. The mind that considers itself superior is much more susceptible to blockage of truth. You know, one of the things I love Tim saying so often, he says it, and you know, it's a, that statement of humility of when I approach something that I think I know, I'm, I'm going to be prone to blockage truth. If I can drop it and go, there, maybe I don't know anything about this. Maybe everything I know about this is in error. Then I make a space for new information to show up, new literal constructs of the mind, new neural structures to become activated. Remember, the, the Beatitudes isn't a nice philosophy. The Beatitudes talk about how to activate a neural structure that is implanted inside of us by the Creator to guide us to happiness and well-being. So when I'm willing to approach something and go, hmm, I wonder what I don't know about this, rather than approaching with, well, I know all about this. When I can approach it with a, a, a mindset of teach me, what do I need to learn? What don't I know yet? Even if I'm at the pinnacle of worldly knowledge, that's the place where it's probably most important to say, I don't know. And so I'm willing to be taught. I want information here. So one of the, the best habits that one can form is to continuously be in that space of, show me, teach me. What is it I don't understand yet? Especially in arenas where there's some sort of a challenge. What don't I know yet? So the unwillingness to to higher places 
comes as a result of this block to truth. The mind that considers itself superior is much more susceptible to block to truth than persons of less intellectual renown since they feel that it's their imperative to protect their image and their expertise. There can be no doubt that Yeshua of Galilee fully understood the working of the human mind. You know, it's, it, it's interesting to hear those who uh, reject anything to do with Yeshua because they're, they're, the attitude, at least an attitude I've seen so often is, well, you know, they were just some old fogies in the desert. Who out in, in a desert community understood anything except they were primitive minds. Such an error here. The brilliance of what this man understood is just amazing. So he understood the workings of the mind. One suffering for blindness to truth does so, and here's the key, to reduce the stress created by conflicting with the laws of living. And that's kind of something that's been driven into all of us. So if one uses blockage of truth in order to reduce stress, and what is stress? Stress is a difference between the way I want it to be and the way I see it. If the way I want it to be and the way I see it have a huge distance between them, like huge, then my stress is going to be very high. If my... The, the way I see it and the way I want it to be, there's not much difference. I mean, I, gee, I'd like it to be a little different. Then my stress is very low. And when you recognize that stress is created, and you can look all over the planet, at least I have, and I've never found anybody who can tell us I've read the stress experts, you know, I've studied Hans Salier, and he can tell you a whole lot about stress and, you know, some of the things to do about reducing it, but I've never been anybody that can tell you how stress is created. And most of the world thinks that stress is a bugaboo. It's something terrible. Oh, you've got to be, you got to live stress-free. If you were stress-free, you would die. Stress is an absolutely necessary component of life. And the way stress is created is by there being a difference between the way you want it to, this way you see it and the way you want it to be. You know, if you're hungry, if your belly's empty and you want your belly to be full, that creates a stress because you have a goal for your belly to be full, to be comfortable in your structure. So, Bigger the difference is, you know, what happens to somebody who gets a little rumble in their belly and, oh, I haven't eaten for an hour and a half? No, they're not rushing off. Their stress isn't real high. They're not rushing off to grab food. But what happens if somebody's been lost out in the desert for three days and has had no food and they come into the room and there's food on the table? What are they going to do? High level of stress, high motivation toward behavior. Motivation comes from the difference between the way you see it and the way you want it to be. This comes straight out of Yeshua's understanding. If you reduce stress by blocking truth, you'll create more and more and more and more problems in your life. So using that modality, reducing stress, 
by blocking truth causes one that can see not to see and one that can hear to not comprehend what it is they're hearing. The intellectuals and experts are the great majority in the group with this mental affliction. They're brilliant, usually well-educated, very proud of their brilliance. And it is this pride in one's own brilliance at the expense of rejecting the teachings of Yeshua that leads to this crippling stress. And you'll notice that as you've engaged in the forgiveness process, what are you doing every time that you engage in forgiveness? You're reducing your stress. The core of the forgiveness process, a la first century Aramaic Yeshua, and when you, you see this and you start to work with it and you understand what's happening, it's so brilliant. What do you do? Well, gee, there's a, I want this person to honor me, and they're dissing me. And they're dissing me with the most destructive words, critical words toward me. And I want them to speak honoring words toward me. What's my stress level going to be? It's going to be pretty huge. And so every time that you forgive, what are you doing? You're controlling the part of your mind with which you are creating your stress. And when you can't, remember that in Aramaic, the word forgive is shabag or shabak, and it translates to cancel. When you cancel a goal, you collapse the perceptual construct of your mind that's a result of that goal. You get rid of your stress. And when you get rid of your stress, there's a space now. You've got to clean and open space within your mind to open a whole different way of seeing what's going on in your world. So Yeshua's instructions on the higher law for the human mind include defenses to this weakness, so dangerous to life and integrity, and a sound culture that are just, you know, tragic to a sound culture. His teachings provide inoculation that protects one from excessive stress arising from fear or hostility. Perhaps the most important discovery of the Foundation's research in finding a cure for this affliction, blindness of truth, a weakness nurtured by having a faulty meaning of words. So we're looking to correct the meanings of the words. And this is going to make a, a huge contribution to correcting the stresses of the mind. Yeshua used the Aramaic word alaha to designate a beneficent, loving, but unknowable being whose eternal laws show us the way to live the best life possible the most functional families, towns, and nations. These laws are the higher laws. To thrive, we must learn to follow them. And, and to, <clears throat> we'll probably uh, change that word follow in the next edition, once again, to honor. The, the word follow there, um, what, I'm, what I'm just seeing as I'm looking at this now, can tend to take us back into believing that law is the rule of a superior and we better follow the superior's laws. And it really isn't 
uh, following them, it's honoring them and harmonizing with them. And so we'll change that as well in the next, uh, the next edition of the text. This is not so difficult for the ignorant and unlettered, for their minds contain few perceptions that conflict with truth. However, with many, quote, educated and the wise, such as Vladimir Lenin, founder of Bolshevism, Adolf Hitler, the founder of Nazism, both intellectuals, their minds were filled with faulty perceptions, faulty facts, and faulty theories and opinions. So what we're looking to do is correct the content of the mind. These lies were carried into them not by their perceived reality, nor that perceived by anyone else, but by the untruthful words from those who felt that God was dead. So if you eradicated that, what happened? Man becomes his own lawmaker. There are no laws to follow. Pardon me. There are no laws to harmonize with. <laughs> Get out of the trap of language here. But, you know, it's like for those who want to pretend there's no such thing as law. Well, go stand, jump off the cliff and tell me there's no such thing as the law of gravity. And and there are men who want to, who, who, I mean, you can go back to the scriptures. It's like, okay, we're not under the law anymore. Well, I want to see you jump off the cliff and tell me you're not under the law. There is this way things work. If you're standing at the top of the cliff and you step off, you are going to go down. You're not going to step off the cliff and you're you're going to go up because you're not under the law. So the intellectual has reasoned, quote unquote, through the faulty use of words that religion was, and, and in you know, I believe it was um, Lenin's words that the religion was the anesthesia for the feeble-minded. False perception and quote unquote facts brought to a mind by deceitful words are just as believable as truthful facts from reality, <clears throat> or we, we would probably say their actuality. And you'll notice that it's not so recently that in a certain context in our culture, all of a sudden, facts weren't really that important because there was a new idea introduced by those who were playing the game from faulty minds that, well, we've got alternative facts. There are no alternative facts. So when we play the game of alternative facts, then the mind begins to reason incorrectly. So to identify their falsity and destructiveness, we must first compare their thrust or impact with the thrust or impact of the higher law, those which hang on honoring God, honoring the creator, honoring neighbor, and self or soul. And discarding the new word or the alternative facts and their meanings if there be conflict. This is done automatically if the higher law is the object of the strongest desire to honor. So honoring truth, honoring law. From faulty perceptions created by faulty words, we still have, you know, today we still have the flat earth society going on. 
if we live by words which reflect truth, which reflect actuality, this cannot happen. So when I'm, I'm in a space where I'm willing, above all, to honor truth, even if it brings me to the state where I have to face my own errors, where rather than calling my error truth, and, and all you have to do is look at power person. When you're in a, a situation where there's hostility or fear in you, notice that your mind's not honoring truth because hostility or fear are states that come from corrupt data. And, you know, we all have that going on at some time or another. And when we're willing to stop in the middle of those situations, take a breath and apply the tools, then the underlying false data is allowed to come to conscious awareness. And when it comes to conscious awareness in the presence of love, here's the beauty of that energetic dynamic. Whatever is untrue about your truth, quote-unquote, your falsity begins to dissolve in the presence of truth. Literally, energetically, when we allow the space for actuality to come into us, when we're willing to collapse the perceptions that, you know, my hostility or fear is justified because of you, when we're willing to collapse that by forgiveness, then the active presence of love creates the dissolution of the error. So this blockage of truth heals when one has the, the willingness to honor truth and recognizes there's a signal that tells you when your mind's out of harmony. There's hostility or fear moving. And hostility or fear doesn't mean somebody else is the problem in your life. Hostility or fear towards someone doesn't mean they're the problem. Hostility or fear means that your mind is using corrupt data to build your mind's construct of them, or if that hostility or fear is towards self, to build that construct toward yourself. So the peril to the intellectual or the expert occurs when he or she thinks they're no longer need relationship with the creator, with love. The intellectual is the expert or sovereign, a god to themselves. And again, you go back to those who said, well, we're no longer under the law. They're men who are attempting to become lawmakers in their own right. And there's only one lawmaker. There's only one way it works. We don't get to come along and determine that we're going to make it work differently than the way it works. So that's a, a bite of information that I hope fits, and I hope I've presented a way that it makes sense for everybody. And if there are any thoughts, questions, push one, and let's have a conversation about it. So the next idea we're going to move into is along with the discovery of why we must be careful to discard faulty perceptions from faulty words comes the discovery of how to do how do you do that? Well the creator generates no data which our senses can use to form a perception. The laws for the physical things of nature produce an ocean of data our senses can pick up and use for perception. In the ancient Aramaic Honoring the effect of something is the same as honoring the cause. So 
they're one and the same. And, of course, vice versa. One word stands for both. In Aramaic, they're not separate. Cause and effect. You know, in the, in the English language, this is another discovery that the foundation made. In the English language, we have a cause, and then over here, separately, we think we have an effect. In Aramaic, that mistake would never happen. No one, no one in, in, with an Aramaic mind would think they could engage in a cause without experiencing effect because they are one and the same. They're not separate, as our culture has done. People in our culture think you can engage in a cause. Oh, I can go off and rage at somebody, what the heck, and not experience the effects in your own physiology of that rage and the results that it will produce in your life. But people in our culture think they can. And, you know, I'll own it. There are times when I've thought I could too. And that's where the forgiveness process becomes such an important key. If we do not honor the laws of living, the laws, the, the, again, the way the universe works, then we're not honoring the creator, cause of those laws. And when we honor those, then our mind is guided by the energetic patterns of actuality. But if we honor a false god, you know, oh, and, and you know, there are many people who give lots of, of verbiage to, lots of language about, oh, I love God, I love God, I go to church, and church is my thing, and I love God, and I love God. But then, when the stress is up and the chips are down, i.e., they have a goal, and someone's not meeting that goal, watch especially if that stress is extreme. Remember the dis distance between the two is extreme? The stress is increased by the distance between the way I see it and the way I want it to be? When that distance is great, let's see what they turn to. Do they turn to love or do they turn to hostility or fear? Does someone start raging because somebody's not doing what they want them to do? then that person who has all those words about God <laughs> proves themselves to be an absolute liar. They don't have any relationship with God. Well, they do, but their God is what they turn to. You can tell who someone's God is by who or what they turn to when stressed. So when we're honoring a false god, i.e. something based in hostility or fear, if you turn to fear, then guess what your god is? Fear. I'm just making a note here. So faulty words are kept out of a mind where one has honor for the laws that create that that flow throughout the universe and that that commitment is more powerful than 
anything else it wants to turn to or honor. Is that making sense, everybody? I hope so. Of great importance to the counseling professions is the discovery that perceptions are the first step to be used by a mind in the formation of opinions. So perception is the beginning point. And, and what Yeshua was, was giving people was the keys to keep perception on track, designed to be a servant, it's designed to be a guide. You know, remember again that Harvard research. 10,000 measurable units of electrical activity are happening in the brain. The max amount of data that goes into conscious awareness is nine bits. It's been estimated that perhaps in that time frame, I don't think there's really any way we know because there's no way of us measuring it, but that perhaps, the guess has been put forward that perhaps there are as many as perhaps 20 trillion bits of data going on while the mind is only perceiving its perception is built from nine bits. And that nine bits is meant to be your a light. It's meant to be keyed to truth. It's meant to be keyed to love. And that's the condition that Yeshua said was first and foremost to maintain in your mind. Keep Rachma active. We have a hand and when up. Rachma is active, love is active in your mind. If hostility or fear enters the mind and, and the, the, the condition of love is lost, then darkness becomes the light. Now, when, when it says in, in this passage, the light of your earthly life is perception. Now, let's, let's see that word as the guide. If the guide for your earthly life is darkness. So your perception needs to be in order. So the light for your earthly life, the guide for your earthly life is perception. Therefore, if your perception is without fault, i.e., there is no hostility or fear, then your whole life will be enlightened. If your perception be unfit, that is, if there be hostility or fear in it, the energy of either, then your whole life shall be darkened by it. If the light for you is darkness, how deep will your darkness become? Now, remember earlier we said that the beginning of behavior is perception. So if the guide you follow, and just, you know, just take a look at your own life. If the guide you followed is some form of hostility or fear, how deep is your darkness become? What kind of behaviors have you done? And that's what this passage was speaking about, the, the importance of keeping, yeah, keep your lights on, that first and foremost, you've got to keep the presence of love active in your mind, or the end result will be crazy behavior. And, you know, we've all been there, done that. Why? Notice, just take an overview of your life and anybody and everybody that you know, and notice that... When everybody's doing what you want them to do, you're pretty cool with what they're doing. But when they step into some form of hostility or fear, when they f 
stop following the the goals that you have for them when it, when they start doing something other than what you want them to do if that resonates in you some form of hostility or fear then rachma and kuba is lost and perception is now darkened all behavior starts with perception so notice the when darkness takes over what kind of crazy things have you done what kind of behaviors have you done what kind of behaviors have I done so the first order of business you know once again let's go back they asked the man what's most important in the law and we could say there in the law of functioning as a human being what's most important what did he say got to keep your lights on got to keep Rachma active just take notice throughout your life when you've gone into hostility or fear I think of moments for myself of when I've done gone into some form of hostility or fear and some of the crazy crap I've done and who hasn't done that first order business I mean this is a 2,000 year old piece of information this simple passage when you understand it from the Aramaic the guide for your earthly life is perception therefore if your perception is without fault that is if it's on track with love with Rachma your whole life will be enlightened if your perception is unfit that is if some form of hostility or fierce comes into your perception your whole life will be darkened by it and you know one of the things we so often see is people who are in such hopeless helpless I mean literally suicidal situations and they get this little piece of information just this piece of information and all of a sudden life turns from darkness to possibility oh I kept my lights on I can see the possibilities here rather than oh hostility and fear nothing will happen then you know my life is over I'm destroyed blah 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 this simple brilliant piece of information is just life transforming people hang around long enough to build the brain cells for what the man was saying and Jean tells me we've got a caller so let's say hello to our caller and we also have someone in the chat room that said they that this is like a personal micro intensive for them and uh, they Good. do have some questions but they're gonna I guess That's they're gonna why email we're doing them this. <laughs> okay and we do have two hands up uh, first one is Chris 404 you're on the air Michael hey young man welcome uh, this two is days Chris. in a row uh, we get to talk to you hey I um, something happened to me about two months ago an incident which was very uh, tumultuous for me and um, I would right. like to describe it to you briefly and then have your reflection on it so I've been a contractor uh, remodeling uh, handyman stuff for about 40 years and this kind of thing happens once every 15 years so I was putting in uh, these four windows for a customer in middle-class Decatur and it looked like a textbook perfect job uh, it was going to take me about two days and then immediately but it ended up taking about five days but immediately on the in the beginning of it the job i knew that this customer wasn't going to pay me or that they wanted to start a fight 
And uh, so what, they did. What, what keyed you into, question before we go further, what indicated to you that they wanted to fight? Well, I, mean, I don't. I don't have forty-five minutes, but but it, it was it was uh, some uh, red flags that I got, and I the, the installation of four windows that I was doing was picture perfect. Every I felt good about everything. I didn't have any bad vibes about right. the customer, and I'm pretty good at getting bad vibes about weird people. And so then um, the last day, I didn't make any money on it, but. The, the the windows went in perfect. He didn't want to pay me. And um, was the indicator? Let let me ask once again because I think this is a really important key for everybody to catch. Did you notice anything in his words based in hostility or fear? Uh, no, not until the second day when I was on the job uh, and. Both the the husband and the wife started to pick apart something of what I was doing, which was not, which I'm, I was con, I was conforming to all the standards and norms of the industry. So to make a long right. story short, at the end, at the end, I knew the guy didn't want to pay me, and it was only seven hundred and fifty bucks. But the thing I I didn't make it took me a whole week. Something that should have taken two days. And at the end, I'm in his house, and I uh, I want to get paid. He's, I know he doesn't want to pay me, and I call 911, even though, you know, the police can't do anything because it's a civil situation, blah, blah, blah. And he immediately right. goes and gets his checkbook and pays me the $750. For right there, I stand up. As I'm walking out of the house, I cuss him out. I mean, really, I I said some really nasty things to him. And from then, I went home. What? what? High level of stress. It was a big difference between the way you wanted to be and the way it was, right? Immediately after that, I went home, and I wrote out the situation, and I went to the DeKalb Police Department to file a police report, and they were very, very nice. They took my report because I didn't want him coming back to me or anything like that. So I was really proud of myself for being a tough guy and defending my my turf, meaning he owed me seven a measly seven hundred and fifty bucks. But the whole darn thing for the next two weeks was tore me down. I was very I I was proud of what I did, but it was very negative in effect on me and my emotion. It was very negative. Mm-hmm. And anyway, I'd like your reflection. Well, let me ask you a question. Were you proud of what you did, or did you feel good about what you did? I would say both. I mean, you I were know. really proud that you cussed this guy out. Yeah, I felt like he deserved it. Yeah. But again, does does him deserving it make you feel good when you think about cussing somebody out, another human being, or does do you just feel good about it? Is it because because what what happens? You know what I hear you saying is one you achieved the goal, one you got paid, and two you had a goal to 
give them a piece of your mind and you did it. And when we do that, what happens is when you fulfill a goal, even if it's a negative goal, it, what, what happens is you get a hit of dopamine. And dopamine is basically cocaine for the brain. It's basically a hit of happy. Ha- it's been called in, in, in laws of living, when we teach it, we've called it happy powder. And the reason why people, let's say, for instance, who are addicted to things like cocaine go into depression and trauma is because when they use cocaine, it burns up their dopamine. And now they don't have anything to keep them happy and they go into depression. So what I hear you saying is you achieved two goals. You kind of got even with them and you got your money. And and that would be, you know, that would give you a hit of dopamine. Again, is it something you'd really like? Like proud of it to me would be like, would you stand up in front of your mother who's a gentle, caring, loving person to go, look, mom, what I did here and feel really good about that? Uh. Maybe not. I, I don't know. On the phone yeah. with you right well, now, I don't know. Just just something to think about, something to sort through, because a lot of people, I mean, people get a, a hit of happy out of achieving negative goals, because it's just the simple achievement of a goal. There's a whole different thing that happens that is a contrast to happiness that the real goal I think most people are after is joy. And joy is a result of staying connected to the presence of love, even if your goals aren't being achieved. You can stand in in a connected space of love, and joy will be present in you, even if you're not getting what you want. You can walk away from a situation that's conflicted and still be in joy. Yes. And that doesn't mean you can't go about doing what you need to do. You know, if you need to call the police, you need to hold somebody accountable for their behavior, you know, that's fine. But the the first order of business, if you listen to Yeshua, he's saying you keep the condition of love in your mind above all else, and you're going to be connected to there will be a centered place of joy that will always be there. And if you do something for a hit of dopamine, that's when you experience the deleterious effects. I hear you describing your own emotional condition and such. That would be my offering. That makes good sense to me. And so when the number one priority is staying connected to love, and, you know, I mean, if somebody comes up and, and rips me off, I can stay connected to love and have a conversation about, hey, you know, this, we need to get the truth on this. We need to clean this up. That, that can be done, and I don't have to lose my, my centeredness or create negative impacts on my own physiology to produce a result that I want. Yes, and I think it, and I think it probably did create negative – might have – created negative effects on my physiology. I mean, I don't know my physiology entirely, but I know that where I felt victory that day and getting the check for 750 right. bucks for the next two weeks, I felt like crap. Yeah. So my because, take was you got your dopamine because, hit, and then you experienced the, the emotion, effect of the hostility. Of the because of the emotional drain, I felt like crap Yeah. for the next two weeks. Yeah. And I didn't know yeah. I would feel like bad for the next two weeks. Right. But yep. I did. Yep. 
That would be the effect of doing something out of hostility as opposed to doing something out of love. Could have done exactly the same thing in terms of put the pressure on to create the result without creating the deleterious effect in your own physiology that comes from behaving out of hostility. Out of the, you know, as this passage talks about, if, if the light for you is darkness, if the guide you follow is some form of hostility or fear, then what's going to happen to your physiology? How deep will your darkness become? Yes. So, you no. Know, for me, you've just given us a perfect example of the point we're talking about here, and and then the work comes of so if if my power person, you know, most people's lives are controlled by the dynamics of their power uh, the power person, and so what, if what, the power person the power always person? turned to hostility when things weren't going their way, then and they turned that hostility on me, then I probably absorbed a lot of hostility from them. It's going to take a significant amount of forgiveness work to, to process through and remove that hostility from myself so that I can stay connected to love no matter what happens, even if people aren't achieving my goals. That's a good point. I mean, I, I, I don't think about that incident much anymore, but, um, and I know your show, uh, you know, your, the phone hour is almost over, but I don't think about it much anymore because uh, it happened two months ago, but I wonder if I ran into him in the Kroger or the, the supermarket or whatever, and I looked at him, and he looked at me, I mean, what would I, what would I do? Would I cuss him out again, <laughs> or, or would I well, just say, hey, man, how, you, how, how are you doing? Here's my <laughs> challenge. You know, you're, you're working on the, the intensive. My challenge would be, do a worksheet or two around it and stop by the next time you're in the drugstore or the grocery store and pick up a thank you note. Write them a thank what? you note and see what happens. Even if you never send it, it doesn't matter. This is all for you internally. Yeah. And see what happens. See, see what the result is. That would be my challenge. Pick up a thank you note. Yeah, write him, you know, pick up a card. Actually, go spend two bucks on a card and write him a thank you note. Wow. And just see what happens to your physiology. That's mind-blowing. Okay, interesting. I don't know if I can do do that, but that's an interesting concept. Okay. Well, I'll leave the thought with you. Great, great example. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. And we're down to just the last few seconds. The uh, the uh, radio show just yelled in my ear that we're finished. So I'm going to say thank you for being with us and the conversation. And great example, Chris. Appreciate you. Have a blessed one. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Have the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. Blessings. Bye-bye.